Welcome to the Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Our mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. My name is James, and I'm going to be your host today. Good afternoon, Technical Sergeant Dan Costi. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to finally be here. <laughs> Dan is a uh, Tesseract core member. He works in the concepts integration side, um, so that's kind of the team that I work on as well. So Dan and I work together a lot. Um, Dan, could you give yourself a, a quick introduction? You know, where are you in the Air Force? Where'd you come from? How'd you get here? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Tech and Dan Costi. Um, been in the Air Force just over eight years now. Um, I'm a C-17 crew chief by trade. Spent my entire crew chief career at Hickam. Um, kind of split that between working the flight line, working at CTK, and then uh, flying a little bit as a uh, non-C-coded, non-official FCC, but yeah, still flying the mission. And then, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I had the opportunity while I was out there to uh, start a software organization called Tron. So I have some experience there in the software realm and then um, worked extensively with the Waha Spark out there, the Spark, the local Spark cell at Hickam and just joined the team here at Tesseract about eight months ago. Um, and uh, yeah, just keeping the ball rolling. Heck yeah. Uh, what were those early days like at Tron and what was the, uh, I guess, what was the intention of crystallizing this effort as a software factory? Because I know that you were working on one project. <coughs> Yeah, so Tron was a beast, um, but it was also, we had a lot of uh, autonomy provided to us by uh, Colonel Burke at the time, the wing commander. Um, so it all kicked off with uh, just some conversations uh, from the major that was running the spark cell at the time, um, and uh, who was and then um, E-Rob, who was the, the wing exec at the time, and uh, he said, hey, you should... Uh, <coughs> you should get after this software thing because the Air Force doesn't do it very well. Um, funny enough, E-Rob said no a lot, many times. And then, uh, and then he finally came around on, uh, funny enough, a, a mission to North Korea when we were going to pick up um, uh, some remains from the Korean War. And so they finally, E-Rob finally came around and saw the value. And uh, so he came back and started recruiting people. Um, I mentioned I was interested in design, kind of had a background in design, um, not so much UI UX design, but the uh, more 3D modeling CAD kind of stuff. Um, I spent a lot of years building robots in high school and competing in the first robotics competition. So I uh, <coughs> understood design, but maybe not in the, the practical sense that we were talking in software. And so we, I applied, um, said that I was interested we did a, a whole interview process, um, got the email that said I didn't get selected, so that was cool. Um, and then they called me. Uh, I was on mids. They called me at about 11 in the morning, uh, sound asleep. And um, my my wing or my squadron commander called me and said, "Hey, uh, they they want you to go go with them to try and start this thing. Um, you got to tell me yes or no. You're going to be gone for six months. TDY. Uh, I for context, I got married three months prior to that, so." trying to figure out the new whole marital living and uh, just woke my wife up also and told her, hey, I'm uh, probably leaving for six months. Um, we figured it out. She said, go do it. It's something you got to do. And um, so I left and went for it. Um, 
and I mean, it, it's history since. Um, we, like you said, we extent, primarily worked on one project, right? And so that was Puckboard. Um, originally started out as a Marine Corps contract, uh, working with uh, D DIU, and then transformed into an Air Force project. Um, we had the opportunity to go through a Red Hat product residency, um, which was working directly with Red Hat engineers, designers, product managers. Red Hat being? Red Hat being an open source uh, software company. Um, and so this was uh, kind of the first product residency they'd done in the DOD. Um, so it was kind of trial and error for them, trial and error for us. We were still trying to figure out what software was in the DOD and how this organic capability was going to kind of come about. Um, we went to San Diego, started working with Red Hat, um, jumped right in it. We continued the Marine Corps project, uh, working at Miramar Air Station um, and with uh, MV-22s and uh, CH-53s um, and FA-18s, all airframes that I was not very familiar with, but uh, grew pretty familiar with pretty quickly. Um, and then we left there. Uh, we worked puckboard there in Colorado for a while, or in San Diego for a while. And then we had the opportunity to go work with Platform One um, and Space Camp as all that was kind of standing up. And so we, we went out to Colorado, spent about 45 days there, um, just working hand in hand with their product teams and kind of seeing how they were doing software, bouncing ideas off of one another. Nobody really knew, uh, nobody really had a codified process of what they were doing, right? And so we were kind of just all figuring it out together. And um, we left there with uh, a, an MVP of Puckboard um, that we brought back to the 535th Airlift Squadron at Hickam, um, which is a C-17 squadron um, in the 15th wing. And they um, were our primary test bed for transitioning from the Marine Corps over to the Air Force, uh, to the C-17 platform. And uh, we spent about the following year just working extensively with them, doing uh, constant uh, design iterations and testing and uh, just making sure we were developing a product called Puckboard um, to meet the user's need um, and the mission's need. That was the wild west of software development. <laughs> you bounced around between these different software factories and you're kind of each looking for uh, where, where you plug in. And obviously with, uh, with Tron, yeah, you had the kind of one big uh, project. I wish that I could have been uh, kind of a fly on the wall for some of those uh, some of those encounters. I'm sure that was really cool. And at, at the time, you were a, uh, a senior airman, is yep. that correct? I was a senior um, So real quick, when they put the applications out for kind of joining uh, joining this team, do you know who those went out to? Is the entire, like Hickam, the entire base? It was the 15th wing. Oh, yeah, 15th at Hickam. Wing. Okay. Yep. Okay. And do you know uh, what kind of made you stand out? Obviously, obviously not enough because you got rejected before being <laughs> accepted. Just kidding. But <laughs> yeah, um, we just like we do here at Tesseract, when I got there to Tron, we uh, had the opportunity to kind of see all of our uh, feedback and the notes that were taken during our interview process. Um, so we could both uh, understand why we got the job, but also learn from whatever you know was pointed out that maybe you wouldn't get the job for. Um, and so I, I guess I stood out um, with the ability to accept feedback critical feedback, um, which was not something that a lot of people do well. Um, and so uh, during the interview process, they gave us a challenge where we had to design an application on the fly to schedule uh, coworkers to play ping pong in the office, right? Um, so they had a whiteboard and they said, all right, design me a homepage, go, all right, cool, here's some feedback from the user. And it was all 
stuff that you would never get, right? Unless you really didn't scope out a problem properly, um, which obviously I didn't scope out the problem properly, but uh, we just got a lot of really critical feedback and had to make changes. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was the primary, the primary driver there in this selection. That's awesome. Um, so I, I think that you transitioning from, from the Miramar, Miramar uh, Marine Corps uh, airframes and their kind of mission set to the C-17 probably had close parallels to what you did in your job interview there, um, which was you didn't know, uh, you didn't have like maybe the right, you didn't scope out the problem set fully, right? You had to go there uh, and learn, ironically, on the airframe that you worked on prior to that, that you had a lot of experience with. Um, could you speak to how you guys approached the C-17 problem set and uh, kind of created a path forward that had user experience and kind of the end product, but also your own capabilities and what you were coming from in mind? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, like I mentioned, being a C-17 crew chief, I have a lot of experience with the airframe um, and working with the air crews, both loadmasters and pilots um, in, in different circumstances, both flying and on the flight line. Um, and so working uh, also with uh, E-Rob, who was a C-17 pilot at the time, um, we knew a lot about the C-17, um, but also uh, what we learned in the six months prior was that your personal bias can't get in the way, right? And so we took everything we knew about the way C-17 operations uh, operate, you know, happen, and uh, threw it away. We wiped our, our slates blank, and we walked in there like it was our first day in, in a, in a airlift unit, right? Um, and we just asked questions that maybe we thought we knew the answers to, but we wanted people to tell us. Um, we wanted the users that were going to use the application that worked the jobs in and out every day to tell us what they needed um, and what struggles they were facing and, uh, you know, how we could ta how we could best tackle those problems. Um, it, it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> it, we, we constantly had to check ourselves, both me and Irab, um, to make sure that we weren't bringing our bias into the, into the realm of the, the, the team. But, um, yeah, that's getting rid of your bias is probably the key ingredient there. Any specific examples of you having to confront a specific bias that you had, um, as it interfaced with app design? Yeah. Um, this is, it was a little bit more difficult, I think for me to make my biases get rid of my bias, but at the same time, make it correlate to what was going on, right? Because uh, I'm coming, I was coming at this problem from, from an unbiased perspective, but also from a maintainer's perspective. Um, and so in my head, we work hours and hours to make that plane ready to go. And every time a pilot steps on that plane, it's because they are in dire need of training or they're running a mission, right? Um, and that wasn't always the case, um, come to find out, but we, we kind of worked through that, that problem set um, for vanilla locals and things like that, if you're familiar with the airlift uh, operations sector. Um, but coming at scheduling aircraft and missions, um, it's all in the airlift world focused on people and their, and their qualifications, right? Um, and so kind of like what a section chief does in a maintenance unit um, is getting people to work, making sure that they have the right qualifications, that they're up to date on everything, and that you are scheduling the right, 
the correctly qualified people together to accomplish a mission. Um, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and making sure that you put the right people in the right positions to both operate the mission, you know, conduct the mission, but also grow as an airman and as a, as a pilot. Um, and, uh, yeah, just be put in the position to work together with that team in a way that develops everybody and doesn't just focus on one thing or one person or just complete the mission. Sure. The, the broader goals that we all have in common that sometimes you can get lost in the weeds when you're uh, in the day-to-day. So you brought up uh, a comparison between um, kind of the ops focus um, and, and you said much like a flight chief, there's this kind of issue of getting the right people in the right places. Um, that would, I think that would point me as I'm trying to understand what you're talking about uh, in the direction of saying, well, the transition from the marine airframes to C-17, they're fundamentally the same thing then, right? So what were some kind of hiccups um, or maybe some ins- assumptions that you'd made incorrectly about how they are, air quotes, the same thing and the, the transition would be easy? Yeah, yeah. Um, the biggest difference between the operations that happen at Miramar and the operations that happen at Hickam is heavies are running their mission every day. Um, we are, uh, we have a certain amount of jets at Hickam. Some are on missions. Some are um, in maintenance, you know, scheduled maintenance, and some are set aside uh, for locals for training. And so, um, those air, those couple aircraft that are on the mission, that that's our operational mission. Uh, you know, wartime efforts, supplying things downrange, um, or humanitarian aid around uh, the Pacific, um, depending on what's going on. And so, at Miramar, working with um, helicopters and uh, and fighters, it was they were in a solely training mode, right? Um, and so if they are not deployed on a carrier or downrange, they're in training. And um, they are training specifically um, in a cycle for an upcoming deployment. Um, and at that time in 2019, we were still operating pretty heavily in the Middle East. And so they were all on track for a deployment that was coming up. Um, and so that was something coming into it. I said airplanes are airplanes, right? Um, <laughs> they have wings or they have... Uh, you know, propellers or engines or whatever, they're all machines that fly and they all operate the same in a unit, right? But it just didn't cross my mind that um, the way, he- just the big difference between the way heavies and, and, and fighters and helicopters operate um, was pretty eye-opening. Sure. Yeah, it depends on, uh, you know, I have kind of programming experience personally, so I, I have like a thousand metaphors going through my head about inputs and outputs and stuff like that. But when you when you talk about kind of the changing the scope, and you are talking about ultimately changing the output of what your greater goal is, right, when you're talking about deployments versus like a daily mobility uh, kind of mission set. So it's both easy but also hard to conceptualize how the actual concrete differences look uh, in the day-to-day. But thank you for uh, clarifying on that. I would invite uh, uh, listeners, if they want to hear more about the kind of complexity of um, transitioning software to listen to the episode with uh, Major Kyle Gouge McAlpin, who is the uh, kind of interim project manager at the uh, DAF MIT AI Accelerator for Puckboard um, before EROB actually went and joined uh, the organization. Uh, but also my uh, interview with Colonel Flack, Colonel Barry Flack, um, the, the episode before this uh, about what it means to kind of consolidate different interests into a bigger mission. Uh, 
like a bigger mission and a bigger goals um, for all the different kind of disparate units uh, that, that form a, a piece of this landscape. After you left Tron, could you talk about what you what you did then? And what was the difference when you were going back versus when you joined Tron? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, quick uh, recap on kind of my career up to Tron was uh, I spent a year and a half on the flight line working C-17s at Hickam with uh, the Hawaii Air National Guard. Um, we have a T TFI unit there. Um, the iron is owned by... Total, total Force. Total Force Integration. Okay. Um, they, it, the iron is owned, C-17s are owned by active duty, but we work TFI there. Um, and then on the flip side of the AMU, the F-22s are owned by the guard, but we also work TFI there. Um, and so that was uh, a really good opportunity um, to get the experience to work with people that have worked that aircraft for 10, 10 15 years, right? Um, and they're doing that mission every day, and they know the ins and outs, and they know the faults and the circuit breakers and everything by, you know, by heart. And so, uh, and they care about what they do. Um, a lot, and so getting the opportunity to work with a lot of those guys was, um, I, I, I don't know if I would have gotten as far as I did, as quickly as I did as a maintainer if I weren't working with them, so I really appreciate that opportunity to have, have been there and done that. Um, I had the, uh, I, was, I was given BTZ, um, so I got senior airman below the zone, and I immediately went to CTK. Um, me being an A1C, just about to put on my third stripe, right? I said, uh, why am I being punished? <laughs> I, you give me a third stripe and you're going to send me to CTK. This doesn't make any sense. CTK, the support section for issuing out tools and stuff, in case you're unfamiliar. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, good point. And so we, um, historically in the maintenance world, in some places, um, CTK was kind of viewed as the place you send the people that aren't performing on the flight line. Um, and that's what people think. Well, then I went back there and I learned that that's not the case, right? Uh, CTKs, uh, the support, sortie support is what keeps a maintenance unit running. Um, and so I had the opportunity there to be a program lead on um, dozens of programs behind the counter. Um, yeah, learning. Just an example? Yeah, yeah. Uh, hazmat, um, coordinating the ordering and disposal of hazardous materials um, from, from the supply section. So we have them in our satellite access point um, and so we can distribute them for maintenance actions such as sealant and grease and things like that. Um, and then taking back the used products and properly disposing of them. Um, that's, that's so this is something kind of unique to CTK and, and Dan here is uh, very, um, he's got a great spirit for kind of rolling with the punches there, but you, you refer to being the program lead for dozens of these things, and then the example is Hazmat, where you're in charge of kind of multiple aspects of this big, like, legal, policy, praxis uh, construct, right? And you're given agency to run it, right? Yeah. So to, to Dan's point there, the perspective for a lot of folks, that that's a punishment, but, uh, you know, you kind of get in that seat and you realize that you actually have a lot of agency, whereas maybe you didn't have the same kinds of uh, kind of room for your own initiative in other places great example but go on yeah no absolutely um i that, that's one example uh, i worked equipment managing equipment um in in the ctk um and in, in the equipment world everything's serialized everything's tracked and it's reported up to the uh um up to the magcom right and then eventually to the to the um to the program office and so we that was there was just so much that goes on behind the curtain that you don't know, right? When you walk up to that counter and you say, I need things to go do a, a basic post-flight, right, or something. Um, I'm going to go do something on the flight line. You say, I need tools, and people give you tools, and that's what you think CTK is. But um, I had the opportunity to 
that was probably my first real opportunity to make changes that I thought would better, uh, you know, help the mission. And um, I had some leaders back there that gave me the opportunity to make those changes um, and kind of give me some autonomy to, to do things and fail um, and, and learn from it and, and move forward. Um, and things like rearranging our entire hangar, right? Um, been there back there a couple months and was just kind of handed the keys to the kingdom to go rearrange millions of dollars of equipment um, because I thought it would be work better in a certain a certain configuration. And uh, it didn't the first try and it did the second try. And so uh, <laughs> there there is a good example of learning from the mistakes. But um, yeah, so going back to the original question, I went into, I went into CTK as a senior airman. Um, I left CTK after a year and a half as a senior airman, um, as a staff select, and I went to Toronto as a staff select. Um, was TDY for about six months, um, came back, immediately went to ALS, which TDY for a software development startup in the Air Force, civilian clothes all the time, right? It was not the typical military um, because we're working with civilian organizations, and uh, we also don't want to bring our Air Force uniform into a Marine Corps squadron because that just adds bias to the conversation that we don't want to present, right? And so um, we usually don't even tell our, our users that we're active duty until after the interview um, because it, it just breeds truer feedback when we don't. Um, and so we, I came back, I went directly to ALS, um, got re-blued, as, as they say. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, they, uh, ALS was a really cool experience. Um, we had some uh, some hardship leading into it, and uh, so it really really rallied around uh, some some folks as a in our, in our squadron when we returned um, and, and worked through all that. And then um, we so I left ALS, worked as a staff for about about eight months on on uh, Tron, and then returned to the flight line. Um, I was given the option or the opportunity to cross train. As all that was developing, um, there were opportunities where I could have, you know, either PCS or worked remote or things like that for other software organizations in the Air Force. Um, those that was all kind of blooming and bustling at the time, and so uh, the opportunities were were plenty if you wanted them and had the connections. Um, but I realized that what I had learned from that experience could be applied to the flight line, right, um, and could be brought back to the mission um, and applied in a different a different way and so I, uh, I opted to go back to maintenance um, which was a rude awakening I, uh, I left as a senior airman right um, I, I hadn't been on the flight line since I was like barely a senior airman still kind of an A1C and I returned as an NCO yeah, CTK uh, also famous for getting you out near the eight hour mark yeah like that's the <laughs> reputation because yeah. you kind of have a, a set schedule of work and stuff like that yeah yeah exactly which maybe being an NCO on the flight line does not have that same reputation yeah. <laughs> without being too incriminating yeah yeah definitely um and I uh that was all going on during COVID COVID just kicked off right and so um I was working from home as a software, as a UI UX designer. Um, I don't know how many hours I worked because the hours all blended together, right? We were at home all day, couldn't leave the house in military housing. And so uh, we were we were just grinding. Um, started up Mattermost at that time and was doing uh, customer service for uh, DOD Mattermost and uh, getting accounts set up and things like that. And so, yeah, returning to the flight line as an NCO, I, uh, I was expected to know how to lead airmen. 
and do your job. <laughs> and do my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not forget, it's been what twenty months or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's been so. two, uh, almost yeah. three years now. Yeah, yeah but okay. I, since I've really hands-on touched the C seventeen, and so uh, oh, because of CTK before. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah, and so didn't have the. Uh, I, I had the initiative though when I had returned to Hawaii while I was still on Tron. To I would uh, we didn't work start work until eight thirty at Tron, and so I would go into maintenance at five when the shift started and so I could get my seven level as an NCO before I went back full time um, because I knew that it was going to be a lot to take on, right? To know how to lead people, to, to learn, relearn my job and, uh, and do it effectively. Um, and so I, I returned to the flight line and, um, you know, as things go, I started right back out on mids. Uh, <laughs> and so mids uh, is night shift. It starts at about uh, 10 p.m. and goes till 5, 5 a.m. in theory on paper. It's Air usually, quotes there. Yeah, 6 or 7 <laughs> once you're done with your you know paperwork yeah. and things like that. Yeah, you so. turn your stuff in at 7. Exactly. Clear yeah. your number by 8. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe you're asleep by noon. <laughs> they do it all over again the next day. Um, and so I grew a healthy uh, coffee addiction. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, but going back... Uh, Right on mids, mids in at Hickam, at least uh, in C seventeen world is where the the prime like the majority of the work gets done. Right, so you're flying day locals, you're flying night locals, and then those those jets return right at the end of swing shift or right on the beginning of your shift. Um, so when you're recovering jets and you're doing all the inspections and then uh, doing you know bulk repairs like tire changes and brake changes and things like so that. So what is done on swing shifts for a lot of other units exactly. conventionally. Yeah. It's, cu- it's done on, on nights for, at Hickam. Yeah. Um, and we, we also operate in different hour structures just due to traffic on the island and that kind of uh, fluctuates a little bit. Um, but... I got back and had some other NCOs kind of take me under their wing, uh, guys that I had known before I left that, uh, you know, knew, knew what I was about before I left and, and were willing to, to give me a hand and get me back up to speed, um, along with the, uh, the, the Hawaii Air National Guard um, folks, that the technicians that were working, and they uh, told me, made it very comfortable, right? They told me whatever, whatever I needed to get back up to speed, they were, they were here for it, and they were going to help me through it. And so um, I'd say within about, I got back in June and by the right at the beginning of September, I took a FCC mission by myself. So within three months, I was fully qualified to do everything I needed to do on the jet um, and was uh, flying missions as a lone FCC. Um, and so that, um, but man, is it a different world? <laughs> it is a different world. Did you feel accomplished like you blended in? for that first FCC mission? Like you landed and interfaced with some people and they were like, oh, this guy's just salt of the earth, crew chief, <laughs> knows his stuff. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> leave a salt trail behind me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I felt like I blended back in. Um, That's good. Yeah. We, um, that, that mission was a, a, a pretty interesting one. Um, I can recap it very shortly. We had the opportunity to take three Hickam aircraft and meet uh, three Charleston aircraft up at J-Bear. Um, Joint Base Almondor uh, Richardson up in uh, Anchorage, Alaska. And we were going to um, uh, work with the Army to do some airdrops, um, some uh, some troop drops. And so we were going to operate a six-ship, um, so six C-17s in formation, flying over um, an airfield up in northern Alaska and dropping some troops for training, right, um, but also operating um, in a formation flight. And that's, that's training for the pilots. It's training for us to de- kind of – temporary deploy to these locations and the jumpers get jumps in 
um, it's cold in Alaska in September. Um, and so, and it was, uh, distinctly cold that year. And so we had some, um, some hydraulic problems with the aircraft, right? Um, six jets, two of them were down cause we came out and they had, they had problems or faults or things like that. Um, and that was, uh, you know, rare, rare instances on that jet, but they, so two were down. So we had four C-17s left. Um, they go to start an engine on my jet and there's a hydraulic filter. That's bad. Um, turns out whoever packed our, our, our parts kit packed the wrong filter as well for, to replace it. So I had two of the wrong filter and none of the right filter. Um, we spent about an hour, uh, they had none in supply we spent about an hour tracking them down there at J bear. And, uh, one of the, uh, they have a TFI unit there as well, our guard unit. And one of them had, their hydraulics troops had one on hand in their, you know, in their, their shop stock there. And so um, we got very close to canceling that entire mission because if we got down to three jets, we weren't going to fly it. And so there was uh, my first mission thrown right back to the fire, right? And it was, uh, it was all on me to, to find this part and figure out how I was going to uh, teach two brand new airmen there on the flight line how to change this part also on, on the engine. Um, and then, uh, but, but we got it and we worked with the pilots pretty well. I was not engine run qualified at the time. So, uh, we had some engine run qualified per personnel come out and, uh, run the engines and everything worked out. So that was, a a prideful moment to, to come back to maintenance and kind of really get the opportunity to make the mission happen. That's awesome. It strikes me, uh, and I have no exposure to the world of flying crew chiefs, but it strikes me that you'd have a lot of opportunities to see the bigger picture of maintenance and the, your example kind of landing um, or, you know, uh, simulating deployment and getting somewhere and then realizing that you're going to have to interface with all sorts of uh, organizations across the entire base to try to track down this part. And that they all have different uh, ways of doing business. Sometimes they have different, uh, you know, information systems and, and just different folks. Um, so you have to kind of yeah, sleuth out where that part is and glad it worked out. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so then how long were you back on the line um, before you applied to a position at Tesseract here? Yeah, so I um, quit Innovation Cold Turkey, you could say. Um, Did not you get the shakes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was hard to say. Um, the, so I knew that going back to maintenance and learning all that, right, I, I couldn't do both at the same time. And so I had to focus on maintenance. And, and then there was also an influx of brand new airmen at, at another unit there in the 15th. And so um, training was a priority and um i i took that on and um, decided that i couldn't do both and so um for about a year a year and a half i was didn't talk much with the innovation community um matter dod mattermost was kind of the the place to chat about innovation at the time i hadn't logged in in over a year at the time and so um had to reset my account and everything which was weird because i was a sysadmin when i left and then had to find somebody to read do all the things I knew how to do. Um, and then, um, yeah, after that year and a half, I, uh, just walked into the spark cell. Uh, and that's kind of the beauty of having a spark cell on base, right? Um, Aloha spark is, uh, an office located next to public affairs. Um, it was the public affairs closet at one point, um, back when, uh, um, it got, all got kind of kicked off. And so that place has whiteboards now and you know, machines and is all, uh, specced out to be a spark cell. And so we, uh, yeah, I walked in and, uh, there was a captain in there who, uh, was a C-130 pilot, um, flying C-37s there at Hickam. And, uh, he 
was just welcomed me back in with open arms and uh, was like, what do you want to work on? What, do you, what are you interested in? Um, and I, I made it very clear, like, hey, there's a lot going on. I don't know how much I'm going to be able to put in, but I'm here to help how you need it. Um, and these are kind of the things we're getting after in maintenance. Um, and we're looking to make sure that we're collaborating with the Spark Cell and the wing, and um, we're all kind of on the same page. Um, and so I worked with the Spark Cell there for about another about a year, year and a half, pretty in-depthly um, on projects that um, Tesseract had their hands on or were managing at the time. So arc water, um, if you're not familiar, it's uh, atmospheric water harvesting and then a solar fabric that goes on uh, tents. And so it generates both uh, electricity and uh, you know potable drinking water from the, from the atmosphere. And so we working on stuff like that and then the uh, things like the M1 uh, safety mechanism um, and 3D printing those and uh, getting certified printers and things like that. And so um, not only was I working alongside Tesseract on some of their initiatives, but uh, don't tell QA, but I had, uh, you know, I would have earbuds in on the flight line at, on mids at night doing, uh, be out there with the flashlight doing a BPO, right? Um, we do I'd, not condone this. Tesseract does not <laughs> condone this. <laughs> yeah, I, w I wouldn't do this. Um, it's definitely a safety hazard. I, m most of the time, to be honest, I had one earbud in, right, and then one out just so I had situational awareness. But um it's 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 kind of full circle here because I was listening to this podcast on the flight line, just learning about you know the initiatives that were going on, um, things at the time that like uh, had to deal a lot with supply and um, that I had no real window into, um, and so uh, I was just once I got a taste of it, I couldn't get enough. Um, started reading doctrine and you know really diving into AFIs and understanding how we operate, um, and uh, yeah, and then I applied to Tesseract. Um, worked with the team, um, submitted my application. Uh, I think I spent, I actually missed a submission window because I spent a long time on my application. Um, but I wrote the whole application in the driver's seat of an expediter van um, on my GTAC, uh, just um, you know, in between waiting for missions, jets to launch and things like that. And so it was a, it's, it's kind of cool looking back that I had the opportunity to you know, apply for this job while I was doing my other job and that kind of make it all tie together. But um, yeah, I uh, same as Tron though. I got an email that said I didn't get the job, <laughs> and so this is a trend with me, um, <laughs> where I apply to something and I get an if I get an email that says I didn't make it, you made it. I made it. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, I think about there's like three some months kind of after quantum that. joke about that about <laughs> observing a state, but not not the place for that. Yeah, Schrodinger's <laughs> acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. I would like to do something I've never done on the show, and I would say I'm going to push back on something you said. Okay. Because uh, I'd like to revisit it. Yeah. Um, and that was, y you mentioned that when you got back to the line, you decided to quit innovation because you couldn't do both, right? Um, but to be clear, I'm going to posit something, and you can agree or disagree. What you were talking about is you couldn't do both because you were a new supervisor in a demanding job on a demanding shift, and when you had previously interacted with innovation, you were doing it full-time, and you knew that you could not keep one foot in that very full-time, very consuming thing. Is that a correct uh, assessment of your thoughts and feelings at the time? Yeah, yeah. I knew, I knew I couldn't give it what I wanted to give it, and so I didn't give it... I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to not give it enough, and yeah. so I didn't give it any. Okay, that makes sense. I just wanted to, to make sure um, w when we go out into the field as a as the Tesseract team and talk to airmen about ideas, 
the expectation is very often that um, one, so ideas come from you doing your job, yeah. right? So that's the greatest source and the truest and best ideas come from you doing your job and then realizing there's a better way to do it, right? So there's that part of pursuing innovation is often in tandem with the work. And uh, the kind of unfortunate truth is that, especially in the earliest iteration, is it's usually done in addition to your normal duties because you still have to do your job, right? That's the first and foremost thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of make that clear uh, when, when Dan mentioned that he couldn't do both. That's a, a kind of personal judgment call, and it has to do with uh, a bigger life interest too, like, you know, still being not newlywed at the time, but that was kind of... Uh, you're still early in getting used to living with each other because you had spent time abroad or spent time, uh, you know, TDY and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And then you suddenly have a new job where you work in mids. So it's like really hard <laughs> to kind of balance the home life thing. Yeah. Yeah. If I can touch on that a little bit, yeah. um, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Um, th these innovators out there in the field, it, it's 99% of the time, not their full-time job, right? Um, they're, they're working. And, and this was me when I was at the in the maintenance unit, when I finally came back into innovation and started working with the spark cell again. Um, if you get a free moment at work, you're, you're, you're working on a project, right? In the innovation realm. Um, or you're working on something in the unit that ha that's innovative, things like that. Um, but it, it, it very quickly turns into, uh, turns an eight hour on paper, you know, work day, especially a maintenance that turns into 10 or 12. It, it very quickly turns that into 14 or 16. Um, and that's not an easy thing. Um, and so, I, I there, there's a lot of conversations about it, and I don't know what that looks like. But uh, innovation is uh, something that we need, right? Um, if we're if we need to accelerate change, or we're going to lose. Um, and so, if if we're not innovating, we're 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 done for, right? And that's kind of how that looks. And um, so, giving people the time to to um, to to work these projects and and. Um, making sure that you're operating a unit efficiently enough so you're not wasting people's time so they have the opportunity to think about this stuff and go out and you know get involved in their local spark cell um that that's key because uh it, it very quickly can get overwhelming and just uh it, it turns into something that you know doesn't doesn't actually create anything so yeah and we, we've talked about that one episode don't have the reference off the top of my head yeah uh but uh you know, kind of a message for leaders, but also, you know, just kind of capital A airmen across the board is, uh, you know, it, there's no blanket solution for creating a space for uh, folks that you supervise or folks that you interact with. Um, there's no blanket solution for creating a space where the, the good-spirited innovators that are genuinely trying to improve uh, their own lot, their... Uh, fellow airmen's lot and, and the lot of the you know overall the, the mission um there's no kind of blank solution for harnessing those powers right it's all kind of like personality based uh to dan's point if you can operate such that you uh you're efficient enough that you have excess time like that's kind of the gold standard and then you allow people to use that excess time uh, that maybe they're still in the workshop to kind of pursue side projects. And and that's not the only way that that could look like. That could actually look like kind of uh, slicing some time out of their day and actually giving them um, some support and then maybe doing some checkups or just connecting them with resources or, um, you know, there, there's no easy way to do it. But I think that kind of segues very nicely, Dan, into talking about what you currently do on the Tesseract team. 
Yeah, so uh, I am a program manager here at Tesseract um, on the concept integrations team. And so we are really focused on airman innovation, as you probably know because you're listening to this podcast. Um, and so we, uh, like, like James said, airmen in the field doing their jobs are the one that are, ones that are coming up with these solutions, right? Um, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of know-how to turn that into something that's real and something that provides value not only to themselves or their unit, but to the to the to the force, right? To to the um, to the ecosystem. And so we day to day, I'm working with airmen around the Air Force uh, in different A4 communities, um, understanding their job, understanding the solutions that they've created for problem sets, um, and then in helping work through, uh, you know, the wickets, the um, this is, uh, might get me in trouble, but I say this all the time. We kind of uh, try to grab people by the hand and pull them through bureaucracy that is the DOD. Um, there's dozens of steps to get from uh, A to Z, right? Um, more than the, uh, you know, 24 that are actually in between there. And so we uh, try to help them navigate that um, and connect them to resources and connect them to, uh, you know, other offices in the Air Force that can help them that may be working on a similar effort and they can combine forces and, and you know, get after it together. Um, so it's uh, probably the most, it's a very difficult job, it's, uh, but it's one of the most rewarding uh, positions I've ever filled in my life and um, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, do you have any specialties or superpowers that you developed or brought onto the team? Oh, goodness. Um, well, here, let me, maybe I'll help you out. All right, all right. If anyone has a, a question, and this is for field-level people only, uh, <laughs> staff folks, you, you can't take me up on this because you'll beat me in my own game here. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have any questions about, for example, the uh, technical order management, you know, policy situation, practice situation, uh, I'm the guy on the team that people point to, right? Yeah. Um, what, do you have any similar specialties or anything? Yeah. Um, being a maintainer, I connect really well with maintenance, right? But also my previous experience in the robotics uh, field and um, work, working, building, uh, I guess you could say world-class. Uh, we, we competed at like the, uh, the international um, championships a couple times, right? And so um, building robots to that, uh, that capability uh, taught me a lot. And really lets me resonate with the, uh, you know, the me the mechanical, the more hands-on, physical side of innovation, um, and so I think I I, I I maybe excel in that arena, um, but also just the communication, um, being a UIX designer and being able to, uh, you know, walk into a conversation with an open mind um, and and a lack of bias and um, walk into supply and not be a typical maintainer that says where are my parts and you know you're the problem right like. Everybody's trying to face the same, facing very similar problems. And so just walking into um, a room and really understanding people's, um, you know, their, their day to day burdens and when, what they're going through, I think uh, probably is a good superpower. That is a good superpower. And that'll, uh, that will, you can carry that with you anywhere you go. Yeah. Uh, do you have any idea what's next, right? You still have uh, some time on the team here. You're kind of on the, the newer generation of folks like myself. Um, but, you know, talk me through your bigger picture plans for the Air Force. Yeah, yeah. Um, to be honest, I've 
I kind of let the wind take me a little bit, right? Um, I, I joined the Air Force to be a crew chief, and being an FCC was the epitome of being a crew chief on heavies. And so that's what I was going to do. Um, then I got the opportunity to, to join Tron and start that whole effort, and um, kind of my, my, my perspective changed um, in the Air Force, and I got more opportunities than I'd ever know what to do with, and um, got to dive right into things. And so I'd never thought I would have those opportunities at the time, and so kind of, and then when I went back to maintenance, I knew either I would stay a maintainer or things would turn into something else. Um, I don't, I'm gonna be in the Air Force for 20 years, at a minimum, right? Um, I, I love what I do, I love uh, being in this organization and the people that I work with day in and day out, um, and, and, and our mission, and so I, uh, I know I'll be here. I know I'll wear a uniform that says United States Air Force on, on my chest, but um, where in that, that world I'll live, um, only time will tell. I normally close asking about what's your favorite part of the Air Force, but I think you just laid it out for me there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, there is one thing I want to close with, um, if you don't mind. Okay, go There's ahead. Uh, something that I try to tell as many um, airmen as I can and uh, I was a perpetrator of this when I was in, in the field, right? Um, there's a lot of problems that we face day in and day out, and a lot of times we write them off as big Air Force problems. Um, you know, that's big Air Force's thing, or I, I couldn't change, I couldn't affect that because that's a big Air Force thing. I said it all the time, and I'm here to tell you that it's not true, <laughs> right? Every person that wears a uniform that says United States Air Force or doesn't, you know, our civilian counterparts, has the capability to make effective change and make this place better and make us a, a more efficient warfighting capability um, or humanitarian aid capability or whatever your mission is where, where you're working, right? Um, you have the power and have the capability to make difference. And so uh, don't let this mystique big Air Force picture uh, stand in your way. Just uh, if, if there's nobody around you that, um, you know, can help you through that, reach out to one of us because we're here for you. It will not be easy, but it is not impossible. Go for it. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for listening to the Tesseract Podcast. This show is how I started to learn about enterprise-level strategy and the innovation ecosystem within the Air Force, and I hope we passed along some learning to you with this episode. If you'd like to engage with our team, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.